Hey friend, guess what? We have so many designers already inside the Design Business Accelerator and they are leveling up their businesses for 2024. Do you want in? Come on over and join us. I am sharing everything that I've learned over the past 20 years and packaged it up in easy to follow lessons so that you can have the most profitable design business, the business of your dreams. If you wanna level up your process, increase your profit, or even launch your business from zero. I've got you. I've got it all inside. So if that sounds like something you want to do, check our show notes and get the link. And I'll see you inside the Design Business Accelerator Toolkit. Hope to see you there. And on to the next episode. Ever thought about starting your own business as an interior designer? Join Liz Levin, nationally published design entrepreneur of 20 years, as she interviews experts, colleagues, and creatives to pull back the curtain on the design industry. Whether you're passionate about design, eager to start your design business, or simply curious about what happens behind the scenes, we're here to open the doors for you. Welcome to Behind the Drapery Podcast. In today's episode, we chat with my good friend, Trisha Huntley. She is the founder and principal designer of Huntley & Co. She has a master's degree in interior design from George Washington University and over 20 years of experience as a designer. Her classical training, contemporary lifestyle, and passion for exceptional details all inform her work. It's just gorgeous. You must check it out. She has been quoted as saying, I like a little rock and roll with my ladylike, and I couldn't agree more. A statement that embodies the eclectic Huntley & Co. Growing up in a household full of rambunctious boys, three brothers meant her room and her belongings were fair game for their shenanigans. Personal environment became important to her at an early age and sparked an interest in interior design. While in grammar school, she studied issues of architectural digest, drew floor plans, and participated in two overhauls of her bedroom. It was no surprise that she was voted most likely to become a designer in eighth grade. Trisha's classical training, Midwestern roots, and fashion-forward sensibility contribute to an eclectic aesthetic that attract clients and insiders alike. That paired with a thoughtful and engaging approach have garnered her projects throughout the U.S. and Europe. Features online, in print, and numerous awards including DC Magazine's Best of the City and Lux Magazine's Gold List. In addition to her numerous interiors projects, Trisha is currently developing additional designs for Ironware International and working on her own custom line of furnishings. Trisha's ongoing inspirations, ideas, and behind-the-scenes experiences can be found on Instagram and her blog, Lux and Lucid. When not engaging in all things Huntley & Co., she can be found pursuing modern art for her collection, laughing at a Tom Segura comedy bit, or inconveniencing complete strangers to pet their dogs. Because just like design, life is better when it's eclectic. I can't wait to introduce you to Trisha. If you don't know her already, you're gonna love her. Let's jump into the next episode of Behind the Drapery. I'm your host, Liz Levin. Hi. Hello, Trisha. Ooh, I like your glasses. Oh, thank you so much. It's hard to make reading glasses look cool, but they're trying these days. I don't know. Some of these movie stars that are our age and older and their glasses that they're wearing are very chic. I agree. Although I really need them now, so I I am fully embracing that. (laughs) Oh, listen, I need them so badly, but I haven't found maybe the right pair. It's also that it's like there's some things I just don't like to do with them on. And so I keep taking them off and on and then I break or lose them. I break or lose them too. And then I've been saying I'm this close to getting the chain. Like I really need the chain around my neck because it's that solves the problem of breaking and losing. And I have them all over their house. They're littered. Like I have the peepers. I've got all the different kinds. Like this is a different style. Oh, those are cute too. But are they the same thing? They're both. Are they, are you nearsighted or are you farsighted? I, this is just reading glasses. So it's just, what is it? I can see far away. Actually, I just had my eyes checked because I couldn't renew my license without it. And and I only go, which apparently is every eight years to get my eyes checked. And they were like, you should probably come more frequently than that. But my distance vision is fine, they said. Although I feel like- But that's what's important for driving, I would think. It is. It is. So they said it was cool. You look so lovely today. I have to admit, I'm in my work from home, like, garb. Even if I'm at work, which obviously I am, I'm usually in that kind of garb. But I actually have three things going on today. So- it's kind of nice that I could stack them all and look nice. Yes. For all three things in one day. I feel like I'm more productive when I do that. If I get up and I have something to, like a meeting I have to be dressed for, it's great. And I'm like, all right, then I feel better for my calls. I feel better for running around in between those things. You well, know, I- the hard thing for me is, is that 
I have to exercise the dog in the morning. Like sometimes I'll get a dog walker, but usually I just take her to the park yeah. and you can't look nice at a dog park because your clothes get trashed. So I'm <laughs> typically in sweats, which is, it's like so demoralizing. <laughs> but we used to look so cute every day at the oh. office. I mean, I know it's hard. I'm in agreement because I'm doing the same thing. And then the worst is when you forget about kind of a personal appointment and you're in the sweats mode from dog and I'll get to my desk really early in the morning and then the ball starts rolling and I'm grooving. And then it's like, oh, I'm still in sweats and it's two. (laughs) The good thing about Minnesota is most days I'm in a long coat Mm. and I can hide the hideous get up underneath. And you never look hideous, by the way. I know you're busy. So I'm I'm really have to say thank you up from I'm so grateful for you making the time. I'm excited. Oh, my pleasure. What's I mean, fun to talk with you, of course. I know it's been kind of a the podcast is great for being a podcast, but it's been this unexpected catch-up time. Like it forces me to make time with people. I don't when do we get to sit down and talk shop? It's I been know. a wonderful kind I of know. reunion with people. This is a treat. And I won't ask you the dreaded question of how people should get into the business. I have other questions that I want to ask. Thank God. Uh, I'm sure you feel the same way. It's like, I think it's not even complicated anymore anyway. So you don't need to ask me. Well, it's funny you say that because I've been getting these DMs. I thought so too. I thought I started this 20 years ago. How could any of that be relevant now with all the things that have changed? Internet, everything, you know, Instagram. And I'll get these DMs occasionally. I got one yesterday where someone said, I think I found your podcast at the right time. I'm taking notes and I'm super excited about it because I just love my corporate job and I'm doing this. And I was like, wow, that makes me, you know, so that's sort of the lens. The focus of this is hopefully to help aspiring designers on their journey because all of us have been at it for so long, so successfully, right? We try. We try. So welcome, Trisha. I'm excited to have you here today. Yay. Thank you for having me. Thrilled to be here. Love talking to you. Love talking to you too. I miss you here in DC, actually. I know. I do miss my design family a bit. You know, I think it was, it's interesting because you and I came up in a time where first it was not a community. It was sort of a lot of infighting and, and I shouldn't say infighting, but like competitiveness and people didn't talk, but somewhere along the line, it changed and we all became very friendly and it was a really nice community there. So I do, I do miss that. I couldn't agree more. I, I've had conversations with other designers, our peer group, and at some point there was a really great community that evolved. I don't know if it was our specific group that sort of meshed together or like you said, something changed, but it's been a nice place to be a designer, right? I think. Yeah. So I, that's one of the first questions I wanted to ask you for people that don't know you, if you could talk a bit about your early days, you know, from school to those first jobs, what did your path look like? What was your personal journey from going from I'm interested in design to I'm going to go for it and ultimately start your own successful firm? That's a lot of things. But starting on the early days, how did you begin in all of this? How'd you get into it? My undergraduate degree was in photography and art history, although I had contemplated architecture. Design was not a degree at my school. At the time. And I just wasn't architecture, even though I still love it. I'm like, I just don't care about holding up the building as much as I care what it looks like. So, anyway, so I ended up going, you know, in a different direction. But then when I graduated, I worked for a builder for like a year or so. And I just said to myself, you know, I really do want to be a designer. So I started looking at grad schools. And I thought this is a good time to, depending on where I go to school, could really dictate the rest of my life. Mm-hmm. And so I was looking all over the country, but, you know, I fell in love with the idea of DC because I have relatives out there and I had visited a couple of times and I just loved the architecture and the urban planning aspect of it. And it's such a great place to learn design. Mm-hmm. So I kind of took a leap of faith and ended up going to school at GW. And it was probably the best decision I ever made because one, it was, like I said, the environment was really great, but also I had a class. It's kind of like what we were talking about just earlier that I had this class of these really strong, interesting women. We were all very competitive and hmm. we really pushed each other. Everybody's very talented. So it was a, an excellent jumping off point for me. Also, we had to have a mentor for our senior, for our graduate thesis. Hmm. And that's where I met Jose Solis Betancourt as I just reached out to him blindly. Wow. So can you be my mentor? And he said, yes, which is nuts, right? But it it was great because I love to draw. I'm a classicist at heart. And that's obviously what he is. Mm -hmm. And so he was my mentor for my graduate thesis, which was, I mean, my graduate thesis was incredible. I I have to find those drawings at some point. At the presentation, he offered me a job. That's Well, what was your topic for your thesis? Now I'm curious. It was mixed use and it was having both a a boutique and a residence. So the boutique was on the first floor and the residence was on the second floor. And we had to find a real building in DC or DMV area. Mm -hmm. And so I found this fire station 
in Old Town and I could, and I found the plans for it. Wow. It was so, it was so awesome. So yeah, so I designed that first floor of that fire station to be this boutique and then the upstairs to be the residence. And it's like, we went, in, there was a lot of studying and research that went into it. So it was amazing. I would like to see that built actually. I'm from Alexandria and I kind of know what you're talking about. Those older, great idea. I feel like someone would want to, you know, use that. <laughs> totally. I mean, if there were a fire station that came available that you could, you know, purchase, it would be an excellent use for that. So having yeah. a mentor on that thesis, that did that lead into your, that's your first design job, right? He was my your- first design job. I mean, it's like hitting the lottery. Yeah. You know, I mean, Jose and Paul, I just can't say enough good things about them because one, they're just so talented. I mean, real geniuses in terms mm-hmm. of design, but also they as humans have so much integrity mm-hmm. and their work ethic and just the way they approach things and just a real elegance in life mm-hmm. that that was my, that was my, you know, where I learned about not just design, but how to be a business person and how to treat people and how to approach you know, your project's just so comprehensive and just, I mean, I work like a dog, but um, pouring your heart and soul into it into just this level of excellence. So it was great. I think that first job is so important for everyone because it really sort of colors the experience or the trajectory of your career, depending on where you discover and start working in design, whether it's for a high profile firm or retail or you know the design the vendor side, people come from the design center and showrooms. It it really does because you're so so such a sponge, I should say, and so hungry in the beginning. You're really absorbing everything in the environment around you. Um, I was speaking to another designer last week who came to design through construction. And then that's really her focus now. And so when she was having to pick fabrics and things like that, she was really out of her wheelhouse. It was just to say, you really did win the lottery with him accepting to be your mentor. Cause I'll put their link in our show notes because they're amazing and they really are DC superstars. Right. So. I mean, they're just, yeah, just incredible. Like I said, it wasn't just the design education there, but just also how to be a business person with integrity, which of course you learn a lot of that once you start your own firm. But I think just having that as role models, mm-hmm. having them as role models was big and the work ethic. And, you know, after that, I went to work in hospitality. So I was oh. doing hotels. Oh, exciting. I've always wanted to do that. What, yeah. how did you transition to hotels and was it as fun as it sounds? I mean, I feel like you have a lot of a creative freedom. Um, yeah, it was interesting because maybe fun isn't the right word because I mean, if you thought I worked hard at Louise Benicourt, I mean, my God, at this, <laughs> at this firm, I worked at BBGM is the name of it. I mean, we worked, it was crazy because they throw you in. They're just like, okay, here's a 600 room hotel. Oh my gosh. And you're going to design it. You're going to site measure it. Yeah. Wow. yeah you'd, you'd be like three girls flying wow. to Puerto Rico site measuring. I'm not kidding. Wait, like it, wasn't like a, it wasn't like a plan where you could just go off of the architectural drawings. There was an existing hotel of 600 rooms that you had to measure 600 rooms. Oh my God. Yeah, I'm not kidding. So, so you do that and then you're doing the design, you're doing these room matrices. So you do these crazy Excel spreadsheets, you go, you go to the hotel and you meet with like the owner. I mean, you're so thrown in and it's so overwhelming that I think if you knew that ahead of time, you would be <laughs> totally freaked out. But I loved it because I like that immersive experience where you get to know every aspect of it. Like, you know, that thing, like the back of your hand. I loved meeting owners, you know, these business people who are, they have these really interesting backgrounds when they're owners of hotels. So you have these really interesting conversations, um, but they're also just, they're all business. You know, it's not as emotional, which is mm-hmm. nice. They're like, I, I'm hiring you to be the creative person. And so I want to see what your vision is for this and then take it to the finish line. So I love, I did love it. Um, It was, you burn out after a while, but it was an incredible experience. How many years were you able to do that? It sounds really intense. And it was just like two, two years I did that. One thing I will say is that I'm, I'm sure it's a little different now because, you know, you have to realize back then the materials were not as chic as they are now, you know, like fire rating and like the synthetics and all of that stuff. That stuff is light years different yes. now. I mean, it looks like regular fabrics. Back yeah. then it was like, you're trying to make something beautiful out of this like poly. Ugh. And I remember one day sitting at my desk and I was looking at this thing. And I was like, I did not get into design. <laughs> Handle these ugly 
ugly fabrics. I can't. Fire retardant fabrics. Yes. <laughs> like this is hideous. I can't deal with it. So, I mean, you know, going from Soli's Bedicourt to that, it's like the luxury bespoke mm-hmm. stuff to that was, that was the painful part, but that's all changed. So I'm sure it's much better now. Even in the residential area uh, that those fabrics, well, obviously, you know, cause that's what you do now for many years. But I remember when I was starting, it was only ultra suede and sunbrella for trying to find mm-hmm. textiles that could stand up to family living or pets. Yeah. You know, you'd have to nanotech something. And now yeah. everything you, know, you have velvets that are made for outdoor and whatnot. It's completely, it's, it's so crazy. much easier. Sunbrella was not all they promised either. <laughs> I know my God, the things that we have at our fingertips now, although, you know, I do, I always like to say that from problems come opportunities, you know, when you are kind of stuck with limitations, like we were back then, you just get really creative. You have to be pretty clever to make something look good. So I think that's a good, I'm glad that we came up when we did. Let me put it that way. Yep. Having those challenges, push the yep. creative boundaries. I want to see these hotels that you worked on. I wasn't aware of that in your past. But you know what? They've all changed over. You know, that happens every, oh. I'm sure five to 10 years. So yeah. everything probably looks completely different. Oh yeah. I didn't think about that. Yeah. Yeah. So you went from being mentored by the best to exciting but challenging hotel projects. And then when did the light bulb go off that you decided to go out on your own and start your independent firm? Well, I'll be completely honest about this. This is not going to be a sexy answer. In fact, I'm a little embarrassed about it, but it's, you know, (sighs) I was getting married and suddenly I, it wasn't all on me. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, I was like, okay, well, I probably can do it now because it's no small thing to start your own firm. You know, it's a lot of liability pressure, you know, you have to pour a lot of yourself and your own resources into starting your own firm. So I was getting married and I thought, okay, I can finally do this. Also because I was working such crazy hours. And my husband at the time was like, you're making this (laughs) amount of money and you're putting in this many hours. I mean, he was very much a business person. He's like, this is highway robbers is craziness. It's like this doesn't one plus one is not equaling two here. Well, that's so funny. yeah. So I'm like, yes, that's true. I won't be home ever. Well, don't feel bad because I too started my firm right after we got married because we moved overseas and then came back. And that was my get out of jail free card to not go back to my cubicle job. And because we had two incomes, you know, I had the support, the, what should I say, the safety net rather. It's the safety net, exactly. And not fail. And then, but then I put that pressure on myself. I won't speak for you, but I imagine, I know your work ethic. So I was like, I'm going to crush it now if I'm, you know, I got to prove to him that I've left the cubicle job and I can do just as well. So then I was, yes, also working very hard, but it's, yeah, when they come from the dis- business world, the initial one plus one does not equal two. It's, it's tough. I mean, yeah. Yeah. And I definitely felt like I had to prove something to my ex-husband. He was pretty, how do I put this? He's, he was German and he was very much of like, you have to suffer for work, which I always had been like that anyway. You know, I was always a hard worker, but it was like, there's no, like there, it wasn't going to be like, I'm going to support you and coddle you and help you through this. Like, it was like, I don't know what you're doing, but you better be successful at this and make some money because you quit your job and I want to see some numbers. Oh so, my gosh. Yeah. yeah it was intense. Yeah. So I worked even harder then. It yeah. was, but that was good. I mean, it was kind of have to do problems that. come opportunities. Like it forced, like I was working all the time and it was just me starting out as a solopreneur. I've always just bootstrapped it. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it, it ended, I ended up producing some really good work because of that. Do you remember who your first client was, how you got your first client when you were doing that? Or the first few that stood out in your mind where they, how did you, how did they find you? I should say, how were they lucky yeah. enough to work with Trisha? <laughs> yeah. I, I, you know, there was a couple of like little piecemeal things, but the one big one that was like a full comprehensive project, he found me because he was from Europe and he was doing work in DC. And I think he just called like some architects or something. And there was a, there was an, a small architect who happened to have his office literally across from my house. Wow. And so I'd met him and he's like, well, there's this woman, Trisha Huntley, who I know has started her firm. And so he Googled me, you know, and like, you know, our first little websites, which oh, are yeah. so, and now we're like, we have to like curate what we put on them. But back in the day, you're like, I've got to find somebody to put on this website. Oh yeah. So it was good enough. And then he called me and we had an interview on the phone, finally met in person ended up doing his, his town home in Georgetown. And he was a dream. I ended up doing three projects for him. I mean, here's a sophisticated wow. man from he's, he was Irish, mm. is Irish. 
And he's only in DC, you know, for business meetings, but he wants to host people and he wants it to be kind of a show place. Dream. And he's not, he's not involved. He's just like, send me the invoices. <laughs> girl, you lucky girl starting. Out. I was so, listen, that doesn't ever happen. Like that was like a once I was, I was so lucky. So lucky. It was incredible. I think we were living parallel lives, although mine was not as glamorous because my very first independent client was also a bachelor in Georgetown near the P Street Bridge and was coming out of my Vastu days and obviously used a ton of Vastu furniture because that's what I knew. But similarly, it was like, oh, granted, he wasn't traveling the world and coming home to entertain, but you know, he needed a place to look polished and allowed me to have my way with it and then take photos, which is critical. I mean, yeah, I didn't have, we, you know, there were no iPhones with beautiful imagery, you know, or the ability to capture beautiful imagery. So I had to hire that first photographer and spend more money than I want to. And I actually shared that expense with um, a friend that was starting her floral business. So she did all the flowers. Oh, all right. Yeah. took pictures well, of the that's genius. So that was, you know, bootstrapping, saving money, but needing something for the website. And I remember the first website, I think I spent $600 and my husband was like, what are you spending $600 on? This is, you don't even have a business yet. And that was by far the best investment ever because most people, most established designers then, not like Soli Spedencourt, but some of the other decorator types didn't have websites. So to have- Yeah, a website, yeah, it's true. You know, this was 2003. So having a website, I was like cutting edge, you know, I was- Isn't that <laughs> crazy? After plan, but it was like thing that set it off, you know? Well, and also at that time, it's not like it is now where it's, you know, they make it so easy for you to build your own website. Oh, right. Like, there's no way you were just going to whip that up yourself. No, it's like building a rocket ship back then. You needed code and, you know, <laughs> totally. impossible, impossible totally. task. Yeah. No, oh I had God. to spend that. And I think she was a startup too. So it was all of us banding together. Are we all starting up? Okay, I'll give you $5 if you can exchange services, you know? Yeah. Yeah. That's really smart. I'm sure. And I'm sure your husband, after the fact, realized. I mean, this is a visual medium. Yes. Clearly, you want to be able to put that out into the world. I mean, yeah. it still is that. I mean, it's moved along far beyond websites to like the Instagram and everything. But when you're starting out, I don't know. I I appreciate that way of doing things back in the day when it was all word of mouth and no website, but it's hard to imagine. It is. <clears throat> and there's just so many more people doing it out there now. Be, me, doing it, meaning so many more designers, decorators, you know, you go into every furniture store, everybody's a designer. I just think there's a lot of people out there and it's harder for people, for clients to kind of suss out who's at what experience wow. level too. I mean, it's sort of a tangential thought on what you were saying, but it's, I think you need those visuals to get that proof is in the pudding and kind of understand what level people are on. Yeah. I mean, it's tricky though, because, you know, Instagram is full of accounts with other people's work in it. So it oh, may right. be curated. And so someone's like, oh, I love their style. And it's like, yeah, but that's none of that's their work. So of course, that's something we could all talk about all day long and it's not worth our time, but <laughs> showing, trying to show your work is in, a, in an environment where it kind of doesn't matter anymore to be vetted. That's I think it's even more important to like really curate it so tightly to like, this is my vision and who I am. I found myself sharing more process type stuff on my Instagram because I felt with just my website, it was very static and I wasn't able no. to invest in photography as often as I'd like, or maybe projects wouldn't always go to the level of completion that I would like. They'd get the foundation done and I wasn't, you know, making it finished down to the lampshade that I wanted. But so the process aspect of being able to do more casual videos of things on the go as I'm working at a client site or working on a scheme, I feel like that's allowed potential clients to get to know me better reach out. So it's a more informal way of getting to know Liz, her style, her way of doing things. A lot of my clients are first timers. I mean, I'm don't have my d degree in interior design architecture. So I'm more, think I'm attracted. But listen, at this point, you do have a degree. In design. <laughs> you know, after 20 years, it's just, it's just, it's just information. It's all, it's all things you've learned. You know, sure. the degree either comes from experience or experience in school or whatever, but it's all learning. That's true. Actually, one designer colleague said that instead of getting her graduate degree, she she learned by doing and, and decided every mistake that she made that she had to pay for and eat was equivalent, was basically her education cost, which I don't know if her clients right? would <laughs> Which is exactly what I was not willing to do. There is no way. I was like, I, I was so terrified of making mistakes in the beginning. Hmm. I'm like, I can't eat that. Me too, actually. I 
was terrified to make a mistake and I'm such a perfectionist. Um, yeah. Exactly. I had reframed it the way she said, I thought, oh, that was actually a smart way to sort of reframe it. I'm sure she did not, knowing her, I'm sure she did not make many mistakes, but you know, the psychology is sure. behind it. So how many years did you keep your firm up and running super busy in DC? Because one of the things I want to ask you is, I mean, I'm so fascinated to hear, given the nature of our business. Well, let me let you ask, answer that question. So how many years did you have your firm in DC? Let's see. I, I, I started my firm in 2006. Mm-hmm. Oh. And I left DC January of 2022. So having a business like ours, where it's in person and word of mouth, and you've built this reputation and body of work in DC, tell me what it was like moving everything to Minnesota. That's halfway across the country. What does that look like for you? I mean, you're such a hard worker. You're so successful. I'm dying to hear how it went. Like if I were to ever move, what's that like? What to do? (laughs) Well, actually, it's funny you say that because a woman from a business group I'm in reached out to me the other day and she said, I'm going to be moving and moving my business. So I want to get some advice from you. And I was like, "Uh, (laughs) I don't know if I have anything that I can tell you to do, maybe not do. So sure you do. You know, it's just been one of those things where I don't know, I was kind of delusional because it just felt like it was, it was just, it was a very smart thing to do at the time. It felt like all the pieces were falling into place for me to move. I hadn't really planned on moving. I love DC, but you know, with COVID, we all started dispersing, you know, all these wonderful little groups I'd been part of were just like not getting together anymore. I felt sort of stagnant. Like I'm like, Oh, I have such a good thing going, but I'm like, it's just the same. Like I felt kind of uninspired, I guess, and maybe stuck in a rut. And I thought, well, God, it's a, maybe I should be rethinking things because people are dispersing, they're moving. I know a lot of people who moved. Plus, you know, the market was booming and I thought, great time to sell my house, which it ended up being incredibly fortuitous. But that also sped things up because I sold my house in two days. Oh, wow. Okay. And I was like, oh, I I have to move. So I, I don't know. I wasn't really planning on that. So it was very expedited, which was very unnerving. Like mm-hmm. you start like breaking down your house and mm-hmm. your like business and you're seeing things put into boxes and you're like, I've got to get these two senior dogs, like somehow on a van and drive in the middle of winter to Minnesota. Like it was, oh my gosh, one of the hardest things I ever did. It was so just uncomfortable and unpleasant. And it was like out of body experience almost. So really, I didn't know you yeah. were through all of that. You know, I only, you were kind of quiet, you know, like a, Because I had to just suddenly like, I just had to get out of there. It was sort of sad. You know, I would have liked to have had like this really lovely kind of um, dismantling with like my life there and meet, see everybody. But like I was scrambling and that's a lot. lot. Plus you're working, you're doing these projects and you're like, you're like something like the computers are getting broken down. I'm like trying to work. How did you advise clients on the end game there? Like, how are you wrapping people up? Would you, did you say I'm going to fly back X times or? Kind of like it it timed out well that for most of it, like some of the biggest things we were wrapping up in time. Some of it, of course we couldn't. Mm -hmm. And I just said, there's going to be a period of time, January, like January I'm out. And that's where the delusion comes in where I was like, February, I'll be up and running. It'll be just like I would never laugh. And I wasn't lying. I really thought that. But then you get to Minnesota in January. It's like one of the coldest winters on record. I got to my house that I had bought thinking I could move in and just kind of live there in the middle of construction and stuff. And I got there. I walked in and I said, this is unlivable. Literally. I'm like, I can't stay here. Oh, no. There's no way I can use these bathrooms. Like it is terrifying. What? I hadn't seen my house before I bought it. Oh, I didn't realize. Like, what are you talking about? So yeah, I bought it sight and seen just from photos, which people think is crazy. But I'm like, you know, we do that all the time in design. You know, we're always doing things like that. And we study the plans. Like we do the elevations. Like I, you know, I know how to do that. But you don't realize the level of grime that is on these, these tiles. And it was so gross. Oh no! I even had lined up these cleaners to get there when I got there. And they were like, uh, we do not have enough time or manpower to get this to a point where you could live in here. Oh my God. I know. So I, I know. So I was like, well, I called up my dad and I said, he has, he had a condo here. I'm like, dad, can I please live in that condo? So they take dogs. (laughs) So that's what I did. I moved into his place, put everything just stayed in boxes. Oh my God. Everything. So totally 
the total opposite of what you were expecting. I, I had no idea. I was watching you share renovation moments of your house thinking, this is great. Of course, it's going to be fabulous. She's using all these great things and her talent. And I didn't realize you were that you appeared with grimy bathrooms and had to live in a condo with boxes. I mean, yeah, stuff for your office. I mean, I guess with samples, yeah. I'm, you figured that out, but just how unsettling yeah. it must have been thinking you were going to land and just hit the ground running. Right. Exactly. So it turned into something where I'm like, okay, well, what I, two things I needed to do was I needed to find a contractor mm -hmm. who was willing to work with me because I wasn't, wasn't a known entity. I had no contacts here for that. And everybody was so busy because it was, you know, that whole COVID rage. Yeah. So that was one thing. And then the other thing was, I said, I have to find an office because I wasn't planning on that. I just thought I'd kind of work remotely and whatever, but I had to have a place where I could unpack all this stuff and have a kind of a normal life because I was out at my dad's. Did you find sort of a WeWork type office situation or did you find, what'd you do? No, I found this where I am now, which ended up being great because it was tricky. I was looking for a place that was on the street level because I had these two senior dogs that I was going to be uh, moving around and they, they couldn't do stairs anymore. <laughs> so oh, again, from problems and opportunities, I ended up finding this great place. That's like, you just walk in off the street, but it was a lot of looking again. I had no, I had, I didn't even know Minneapolis. I mean, it'd been, I had left when I was 18. I didn't know the city anymore. So you grew up in Minneapolis, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, so was anybody left from your early days? Any family? Oh, for sure. Okay. For sure. I have a very strong group here. Um, there's nine of us in total and there's, uh, there's five of us now who live here. So mm -hmm. There used to be, you know, it was, I lived in DC, one of our friends lived in Hawaii, one lives in Colorado, one lives in Spain, but the rest were here. Wow. Yeah. So I have a very strong supportive network in terms of girlfriends. So that makes all the difference in the world. Oh, yeah. That eases everything. It doesn't totally yeah. take away the bathroom situation and living out of a box, but at least you can yeah. go out and have a drink later and enjoy their company, right? Commiserate. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, actually two of them showed up the day I arrived and I just started crying because I looked at them and I thought, Thank God I have you. Like seeing your faces here makes me realize this is not the worst thing I've ever done in the world. Like not a big mistake. So yeah, they've been they've been wonderful. Oh, I love hearing that. Yeah. So um, so yeah, so I did end up finding a, a contractor. Okay. And so I started work on the house. I think it was that summer. And you know, everything took longer than usual. Everything was three times as expensive. Which, which I don't know if you've experienced that as much in DC. I'm sure you have, but for sure out here, three times the cost for labor, anything involving labor. Yeah. I had clients that came to me sort of in that peak COVID time that said, whoa, we had a bid and we were ready to start. And now all of the materials are three times what they put at us. And one client had, who had an expansion plan had to stay within the footprint, which really changed everything. They couldn't do the big kitchen they wanted. And they're wow. ultimately happy, but I, I, everybody was shocked. Like the painter, every single piece of that bid was exponentially more expensive and nobody yeah. had been prepared for that. And then the no. get things from windows to appliances to sure you know. that went from eight weeks to eight months. All of us, as you were too, were just blown out of the water. It, yeah. COVID was wild. I mean, in some ways it forced me to up my game process wise and, and doing things more digitally because I had no choice and things were busy. And, but in other ways it was just really learning. I mean, I can't imagine if you were kind of green then and just starting out, not understanding how to navigate that or have deep relationships with your vendors, those folks were probably hosed or just drowning or. Oh God. Yeah. I can't either. I think that would be I think you'd leave the business if you didn't have the wherewithal and the experience to know how to navigate that. I think it would have been really dicey. Oh, wow. um, so in some ways it's good because that I knew I would make relationships, develop some relationships through that, which was good. And that's why I could meet some vendors around here. I think it's just that it was much like, I thought I could just like knock out this renovation and like get settled really quickly. And so instead of it being like up and running and having this whole life within, you know, nine months, it's took a solid two years. Ooh, yeah. Kind of get to feeling kind of settled, like like everything's kind of in its place. Um, and when you're in that really kind of complicated development phase, it's a hard time to be marketing because mm -hmm. you just don't feel like yourself. Mm -hmm. You're like, yeah, I haven't quite got my house done and my dogs just died. And like, I'm in this new place, but everything is, was still in boxes. So there was just a time where I'm like, you know what, Trisha, what you need to do is you just need to hit the pause button. Like there was, I put a lot of pressure on myself as we do whenever you're a business owner, you've got like this whole timeline thing and you've got all these expectations put in place. And it just said, you know what? You just need to let 
things happen at the pace they're going to happen, which is then I calmed down and I was like, okay, it'll all be fine. I know how to do this. It's going to take longer than I thought. I just can't have, I don't know what I'm, I'm not, this is all new. Like it's in some ways I was like, just remember, you've got all these things in place and you're just activating it in a different location, but you've got to let that time, you've got to let it kind of ferment. Like you've got to let these things develop. You can't force it all. So once I changed my mindset on that, things got a little bit easier. Plus I saw my clients in DC, like I still have projects, like they still come back to me and they have in the last few years. So that was definitely not only my bread and butter, but also just keeping all of that, those juices flowing, still working as a business person, making the contacts here with those projects. So that was nice. Has been nice. You give yourself that space to sort of settle into transition, but you know, the nuts and bolts of it are, if you need to pay for your rent and all these things, you were able to keep DC projects alive. And did you have like a remote project manager here that could be boots on the ground or did you rely on vendors or? I still had my assistant for a while, the one that I had in DC, which was huge because, you know, with assistants, how great they are. They're like, they, it's like you have a shorthand. It's like, you can speak in code. You can just kind of pause. You're like, mm. she's like, I know what you're thinking, you know, that kind of thing, which was <laughs> totally. really wonderful. And she was great. Um, so she was with me for a while, but then she ended up getting another job where she was not, she was going to be like the main project manager and and switching gears, which was good for her. Mm -hmm. So I did find it was difficult trying to find, I mean, I've still struggled with it in terms of finding remote work in the place where you want them. Sure. People are willing to work remotely all day long if they're just in their place doing their thing, but to find the person in the city you want, like where you have the jobs is pretty tricky. So um, in the last few years, I've had a couple of people work for me in DC, but you know, just to pull the curtain back, one way to back the draperies, <laughs> this is what we're talking about it is. is, you know, it's very different to have someone who's loyal to you, understands how you do things when they're with you in person, mm-hmm. you, you have a relationship when you've met them remotely, you've literally never seen them in person. They've never seen your office. They've never seen like my binders and like all that work. It's just not the same commitment. And especially if they're only doing it kind of part-time, which is what I was asking for, you know, people just come and go. They're like, well, uh, you know, one was like, oh, I'm, I'm just feeling too stressed. Sorry. That's part of my mailman coming in. I'm feeling too stressed. And so, you know, I'm going to be leaving and they're like, just gone. Or another person who, was great, but she's like, I need more hours. Not having reliable people, boots on the ground, definitely been one of the toughest parts of this whole thing, for sure. And especially the part you were talking about being committed or, you know, having not worked in your office physically, that sense of accountability with the clients, you really have to be in person or at least on those Zoom calls with them. I mean, I've, got, I've had remote project managers that end up being very good, but there's a lot of time spent with either Zooming with the client or with me that they're seeing and feeling the relationship or responsibility to the client or the project outcome, which I think if you're just seeing plans and proposals in isolation and you're not understanding the timetable and sort of the personality of the client and, oh gosh, we got to do this and that and feel that desire to really make that project sing and get the results that they want. If If you're remote and kind of detached from it, you get a detached response, I think, from those people working on it. With you. Yeah, that's a good way to put it, the detached part. It definitely, and not only that, which is a huge part of it, it's just like, you know, that organic relationship thing where you're having this connection with you not only your employee, but they have a relationship with the client and all that, is that then you sort of double up on the work. It's like, okay, I'm going to order samples for here so I can see them, but then I need my assistant to order samples, you know, where she is, so then she can look at them in place. And you're like, God, we're really duplicating a lot. That's like the inefficiencies, you know, for someone like people like us who are perfectionists and created this incredible system, all these systems over the years where it just like, everything is like running like clockwork and it all kind of breaks down when you're all piecemeal and in different parts of the country. And that really was a hard pill for me to swallow. I'm like, I do not like doing business like this. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, I have, every time I get on a business call, like with my business groups, I'm like, I just really don't like this remote work. And they're like, it's the way of the world. You better get used to it. I'm like, do I, do I have to do this? I don't like it. (laughs) You don't like it. It's like swallowing a bitter pill. I had to switch. I think we've had, you know, last time I saw you in person at one of those lovely events that we would attend. I think I chatted about this because I, I ended up keeping and hiring my remote assistant full time, but 
it also, you know, it took a long time to get that intimacy and accountability built in. And then I found that if I would bring her up to work with me for a photo shoot or a certain client install that we needed more, you know, hands on deck, that then those moments really deepen the relationship and her commitment and all of that, um, which is great, you know, but I think you do, it's just a different animal, right? We're used to having that automatically built in on the daily exposure to working together. And I had to become more conscious of those in-person moments, either traveling together or creating ways to sort of foster that. Yeah, that's smart. That's very smart. I think, you know, it's interesting because a lot of what we do, it's not just like picking stuff. Like we really are trying to create these environments and this vibe. So people feel a certain way in their homes. Mm -hmm. And so I think to take that out of like the process part, it's impossible to create something that feels a certain way. I think those relationships with our staff are so huge. And I have to say, probably some of the greatest joy in my career is working with these, you know, typically younger women who they start to really, you see them grow and you get to have these fun conversations and it just becomes like this shorthand I was mentioning. I just think that's such a wonderful part of the design business. I don't want that to go away. Yes. No, I, those relationships are important. And I've gotten a lot of joy out of watching those early design assistants evolve into growing their own independent design businesses that are super successful. And that's like, oh, Sally and yeah. I would raise these baby designers and look at them go, you know? I know. I love it. it. Exactly. Which is so nice. Well, I thought it was genius too, how you were saying, I know it just happened to be that you needed to renovate this house, but that's a really good strategy for designers moving to see if they can immediately get involved in a renovation project, either of their own home or a client they can connect with to really get to know those trade vendors. I have an um, assistant designer who um, is building out our New Jersey area where she lives, and she started with designing her mom's home. She was moving from Manhattan to New Jersey, and that was the perfect segue or introduction to the trades in the area. So once that's done, we can shoot it, take pictures and and market to that area and she can grow her, you know, her client base there. But she, she'll actually have, oh, where's the workroom that I want to use? Because I'm likely not shipping it from D.C. as much as I right. like, you know, that's a good strategy for moving is getting some kind of, I guess, either renovation project or try to, it's a, expensive to try to flip a project. I don't love that word, but like an investment yeah. property. Yeah. And also I think it's flipping's a little tricky for what we're doing because, you know, we're, we're selling more of a luxury product. And when you're flipping anything, it's got to be cost-effective. Like you've just got to get really, really basic products. So I don't think that would financially be the biggest thing to bet on. Uh, but what, yeah, what your assistant did, I think that's because you have to, you have to find out who you're going to work with. Like you have to Google and ask people. And it's sort of a leap of faith with some of these vendors. I mean, I have this sofa that I'm having reupholstered and I, contacted like six of them and you look at their websites and you're like, I think Mm. this might be great, but I really don't know. So we'll find out when I get this sofa back. And it's your sofa. So at least if you don't love it, it's not exactly examined or worst case rejected by the client. Oh my God. What a disaster, right? Like I, I, I just don't think I could do that. I don't think I could make a client a guinea pig. I'd much rather be the guinea pig. Yes, me too. I, whenever I reupholster something or try a tile vendor or something like, let me see, let me see what this yeah. You know, living on the other end of a renovation, I mean, you probably, I don't remember when you finished your DC home, but refresh, you know, refreshing that experience in your own mind. When I did my own kitchen two years ago, I felt like, okay, now I really feel what it's like to live through this again. And that opened my eyes or refreshed my mindset when working with clients to, to anticipate the discomfort, the inconvenience. I mean, it is all of those things. And, and stay ahead of it, you know, because I'd lived through it more recently, which you kind of forget because you're used to inflicting this on others, <laughs> yeah. so to speak, and not living through it. It's so true. It's so funny you say that because it was definitely a refresher course and <clears throat> the stress that just when you get to that fatigue mm-hmm. where you're like, I just don't care anymore. Just get out of here, you know, and we are always telling our clients to sort of bear down and you can do it and it's almost done and this is how long it takes. But yes, being on the inside of that, (laughs) oh God. But then again, I think about it, I was like, you know what? But that's what's so great about having a designer is that we are there to support our clients. Like I didn't have anybody supporting me. It's just, you know, me having, me knowing how long things should take and this is not how long it should take or knowing how how much something should cost and they're charging me acts. I'm like, this is making me mad. Whereas having a designer being that, I mean, you're, you're the supporter, you're the facilitator, you're the magic maker. Like 
I can cheerlead about designers all day long. I think it's amazing what we provide in terms of just like, you know, this visual experience, but also, you know, the, the support that we provide our clients and how we, we do keep things behind the curtain. Like that's my business model. That's your business model. We don't like to like always show everybody how crazy it is. We want to keep that behind the curtain so that they can enjoy their experience. I mean, what a dream. I know the emotional support to have someone, you know, one text away to answer and sort of put your mind at ease or I'm not loving this, Liz, or this didn't come together with you. And Liz will go figure it out for you. Whereas, yes, but we're doing it for ourselves. I'm thinking, oh, I hate this thing. And now I've got to go battle with the guy that put it in. I don't love that role to be the bulldog on it. I'm trying to be the happy client receiving their work. Um, No, it is a nice service. We do keep that chaos or that busy work behind the curtain. When we get quiet in those stages, working for the clients, some of the designers, we've been talking about this, the client doesn't know what's happening. We're furiously, you know, like that duck on the water. You don't see them paddling like hell underwater. Right. Right. It looks so smooth, but that's part of the experience. That's what you're paying for this one-on-one. It's a service. It's creating that environment, but it's when we talk about pricing and stuff, I know we're going to get into that today because I seem to get on that every single episode, but you're paying for a service, this not just the experience and the vibe, but to have someone who's experienced, who can take on that burden, who can guide you, who can psychologically support you. Not to be dramatic, but there is that, especially working with couples and budgets and construction, you know. Yeah. I mean, to me, if someone has the resources, it's an absolute no, no-brainer. Mm-hmm. Like why? First of all, you have to get out of your own way. It's yeah. very difficult to do your own project, even as a designer, because you got all this stuff spinning in your head. You don't need perspective. So there's that from jump, right? You need someone else who can like oversee everything and have the perspective on it. But, you know, I could say this all day long, but when people are like, Oh, your job looks so glamorous, looks so fun. I'm like, you need to stop saying that (laughs) because it's a lot of work. And when people are like, Oh, it's not brain surgery. I'm like, it's not brain surgery, but logistically it's very complicated. You know, we're doing, we're, we're the talent. So we have to create, this magical, you know, all these magical schemes. We're a technician. We're creating these details and working with architects and contractors and making these very complicated things work. We're purchasing, we're procuring, we're storing, we're inspecting. I mean, listen, we have one of the more complicated jobs on the planet. So designers need to stop dumbing it down and saying how like, oh, this is so, this is so fun and so glamorous. And maybe that's great for marketing, but I think I'd rather be respected and want people, I want people to respect our industry Hmm. and know that there's a lot that goes into it because that's the value we're bringing to the table. It's not about like, I'm just going to go shopping for you. (laughs) That's not not what we're doing. So I want people to understand, be educated in terms of what it is that we bring to the table because designers deserve a lot of respect. I agree. And as you were speaking, it made me think that that might be the way that instead of just projecting this beautiful, glamorous image of finished projects and photo shoots to show more of the nitty gritty behind the scenes also, I think, informs clients about the value, as you say, that, you know, it's not the cheapest way to do things. If you want to decorate a house, you can get a template, you can go, you know, if you want to have a service with someone who has experience and who's going to, you know, narrow the millions of choices down to a curated set that fits your personality and your lifestyle, that is not inexpensive and it's worth it. It has a value and that work behind it is something that nobody really appreciates until they live through a renovation or try to piece this puzzle together themselves. And they realize how overwhelming it can be for people who've never done it before. And all these systems that we've created and that just look effortless when we present to the client has been very carefully built with a lot of man hours and sweat behind the scenes. So maybe yeah. that's what we should be projecting as an industry instead of this swanning around beautiful interiors. I, I mean, I guess that's what people think will sell. You want a beautiful space, but if you're going to charge what we need to charge to make a living and to support the teams that help us implement all of these beautiful designs, you need to understand the value. I guess that's, I mean, hundred percent. I, the way you said that sort of made a light bulb pop up in my head that people don't understand the behind the scenes. No, it's very interesting because how we parse that out and market that is, is really the tricky thing because I was having a discussion with a client, maybe it was, I don't know if it was over the summer and the spring or something. And she was like, you know, why don't I just do this? I can just go do this on my own. <clears throat> we were refinished. She needed some of her floors refinished, which we had refer- re- refinished 10 years ago, the whole house. And I said, you know, I'm going to be honest with you on this. 
10 years ago, this was a nightmare. You don't know that because that's not my place to tell you that. You know, you guys were on vacation. The people came in. We had approved this finish. They showed up. They were doing something completely different. It was wrong. I'm like, I had to go to the mattresses. I'm like, I got, you know, like difficult Trisha came out and I was like, this is unacceptable. You need to redo all this. Like you never knew any of that. So if you decide to go do this on your own, I'm just telling you that's the pitfalls that come in place and I'm not there to deal with it. And she's like, Trisha, you should tell people about this. And I was like, that doesn't, it's not sexy. It doesn't sell, you know, like people need to, like they are, they're looking for designers and they're looking for like this vision of what their home can be. That's really what their focus should be. So it's like to try and like, you know, wedge in this thing, like sort of like shoehorn, like, and by the way, it's all really hard and I make it look easy. It's sort of like, it doesn't register unless they're experiencing it. You can't really like tell people about that. Well, and I think it also could come across as complaining, which we don't want to do. Exactly. Service. It's like, oh, do you know what I just dealt with, with this guy and your plumbing and the HVAC that I had to crane to the roof or whatever the. <laughs> right. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Like, I don't, you want to um, not sell. Yeah. You want to sell the experience um, and you don't want to sound like you're griping along the way, not you, but a designer, you know, so it's exactly it's where to wedge that messaging in. Um, like in parentheses, it's going to be beautiful. And by the way, I will handle all of the drudgery that includes this giant laundry list below for you at this bargain cost. I mean, where do you put that in? You know, I don't know. I think maybe we need to come up with an analogy or something yeah. or something the comparative that we could use as an example. Um, because, you know, everybody can understand an analogy um, and maybe something that's not as as uh, alluring as design. If we could equate it to something else that might bring it home. It's a good point. They say storytelling is the best way to storytelling. Exactly. Yes. No analogy is exactly that. I um, was actually reading about that recently because I find that interesting, like convince people with storytelling because that's the oldest way that we as humans share information through stories. And we have to work on that. That's what, that's our homework. Like what? Yeah, that is the homework. And I, I do like storytelling. I, I do feel like that's kind of what we're doing as designers is telling a story of our clients. You know, I know that you work that way. And I, I mean, of course, we both have our own unique styles, but part of the real pleasure for me is, you know, finding, you know, these clients come to you and you sort of have to discover their essence mm -hmm. and the house's essence, you know, what really makes each of those things who they are. And then you kind of put the puzzle together and then you create this whole thing. And that's the joy of design. I agree. It really is magical when it starts to come together and all those months of discovery with the client and pulling all these things. And that coupled with the fact that every project is truly unique. And like you said, we have certain points of view uniquely in design, but um, weaving together that client story and then discovering new things that fit that project keeps it fresh and creatively interesting because you're always on the hunt for something new and um, yeah, I think as a creative, you need that. If I were stamping out the same thing over and over again, I would die of boredom, you know? Oh, I know exactly. I just never, I was never that person who could, um, replicate, yeah. you know, and I get it. I think it's a very smart business model, mm -hmm. but like, we just don't like to do things. I don't like to do things over and over again. Cause I get bored. That's, I want to be creative. That's why I work, why I'm in this. Like painting a picture, you know? Um, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Creating space. Well, that dovetails into my last question for you, which is, can take a minute to think about it, sort of a highlight of your career. We're talking about all these different moments. Do you have a particular project or moment that really stands out to you as being a highlight? I'm so glad I did this. I love being a designer. And when things like this happen. Oh, that's a good question, Liz. <laughs> because some of the moments that you that stand out are the ones I'm like, oh God, I love that project. Yeah. But it maybe wasn't the easiest situation. And then there's other times where it's like, oh, you know, I kind of like that project, but the client was a dream. Mm -hmm. I will. Okay. So I will say that where it kind of all came together. It's not that it's maybe the most Trisha project on the planet, but I do feel like just everything involved, like this project in Annapolis that we have, that we've, we did a phase one and a phase two. These clients are such a dream. And I, you know what? I have to say that about 90% of our clients mm -hmm. are delightful, gracious, benevolent, lovely people. So mm -hmm. let me just put that on the record because I've got mm -hmm. some incredible loyal clients who come back for like four, five projects. So God bless all of them. Um, but this project in Annapolis just was really nice because they hadn't really done anything for to their home and it needed a lot of work. 
And they were just really, they really embraced the like visionary part of what we do. Mm-hmm. Like they got so jazzed mm-hmm. about like showing them what the vision was. Mm-hmm. And they both are very loving people to each other and to their children. And that love kind of parlayed into our meetings. And it's like, this is how it's supposed to be where they're just eating it up and they're so excited and they're telling you how excited they are. And the whole way through, like, even when it gets really hard, they were just patient as could be and delivering something to clients like that. It just doesn't get any better. You know, they, and we did like the whole house. It's like on the water in Annapolis um, has great light. You know, you're like, these photos are going to be so fabulous because the light's so great. Totally. Um, we did all three of the kids' rooms. So, you know, I don't often do a ton of kids' rooms. You know, the section when you're doing every part of the project mm-hmm. and it's going well and the clients are loving it and you know it's going to look good in photos after the fact, just like hitting all those notes yes. along the way. Sort of feeds off of itself, the positive energy, the love, the mutual appreciation of them and them appreciating your designs and your ideas and letting you really do all the things you're great at to achieve their goals. Ooh, it's like the synergy there, really. It's hard to beat. That is when it it's gets hard to beat. And I think that's if you ask any designer, you know, what do you look for in a client? It's you're looking for someone who wants not only just the whole experience, but they're looking for an expert in what we do. They're experts in their own fields mm-hmm. and they know what that means to be really good at what you do. And so they're, they're looking for this expert so that they can appreciate it and watch it unfold and enjoy it mm-hmm. and not sort of get into it and try to like control it. They just sort of want to sit back and have someone care for them and bring this vision to life um, so that they can just, again, enjoy the process and have someone take care of them for once. Yes. I feel like when clients really trust you and I don't know what that magic thing is that I I wish I could bottle it up. How do you, you know, screen for that in the beginning, but when they really trust you and are excited by what you do, it's just, uh, I feel like I do my best work then because we're just, I'm just feeding off of that. Yeah. Yeah. Actually that's good homework too, is to think of a question or some kind of litmus test um, for the clients who are really looking for that um, in their designer. When I advise clients when they're looking for architects or, you know, other related fields, I'll say, see what they're, this is very obvious, say, look at your portfolio. I said, but look at the portfolio in a way that if you really, really love what they're doing and what they're drawn to naturally or where they're kind of point of view lands, then you won't have to get in there and try to arm wrestle against their natural direction or their instinctual ways of doing things. Because if you hire someone that's modern and you want something really traditional and you think, I really like this person and we're going to just find something in the middle. It doesn't, not to say that designer can't do different aesthetics or different time periods or whatever the right descriptor is, but it's, you can just really find someone that fits the look you want, like you said, and let, and really trust that person to um, do it for you and allow you that experience of watching it unfold and just enjoying it. That's great. You can show a couple choices and they they pick one of the three. It's great. It's like, all right, now it's, now we're, we're moving and grooving. Yeah. You kind of want to start on the same page for sure. Right. Yeah. Um, because otherwise there's just so there's too many, there's millions of details mm-hmm. and to not be on the same page about the aesthetic. <laughs> I think that would be very laborious. That could get real tedious. It happens though. I feel like people don't, especially people that clients I'm speaking of as people who aren't right-brained or comfortable with that. They don't always recognize that what they're picking isn't aligning with their goals or, you know, yeah. Yeah, that's a whole nother podcast, which I think is actually an interesting conversation, which is trying to show people things that I know that they don't think is them. And I'm like, it's not, you can't look at every little thing and say, this is me. That's when it gets very kind of vanilla and like stuff you see everywhere. It's like, you have to have these weird things come in that it makes the whole thing work. And it's not just about every little thing being your color choice. Like, I know this isn't your color. Mm-hmm. but it has to offset these other things that are your color so that those things sing. But again, that's a whole, that's a whole I mean, conversation. When you educate clients on that, I hope they say, you're right, Trisha. I couldn't agree more. You know, eventually what- they do. Eventually they do. If it's the right fit, they eventually do, but it's education. But I love that part. I like educating clients. Big part of the process. Well, my goodness, I am so grateful for your time. I feel like your insight is going to help so many aspiring designers. I always love seeing you. I love seeing you too. I always love chatting with you. You're the perfect podcaster. You're so telegenic and and delightful. 
So I'm sure that you end up having some nice conversations with people. There's a lot of fun things to talk about. It's a lot of interesting things to talk about. Well, thank you. I really appreciate that so much. My pleasure, darling. It's good to see you. Thanks for listening to this episode of Behind the Drapery, where we pull back the curtain on the interior design industry through stories, insights, and creative processes that shape the spaces we create. Make sure you subscribe to get the latest episodes from your favorite podcast platform. And visit our website at lizlevininteriors.com for more information.